welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You are with Ian. And with Mike. And together, we're steadily working our way through our favourite novel series, the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, where had we got to in 13 Gun Salute last week? How many guns of salute are we in for this week? <laughs> well put, Ian. Yeah, last week in Chapter 7, Stephen had turned Lesueur into a triple agent. So we you know, got the intelligence going strong. Abdul yeah. had tried to ruin that gunnery exhibition and the cannon fireworks show on the Diane. Van Buren confirmed that Abdul is the Sultan's lover, and Stephen confirmed that Ledward is Abdul's lover. Yeah. The Sultan's wife announced her pregnancy. The Sultan left on a pilgrimage with Fox and Company, which allowed Stephen to visit the Kumai Temple and interact with all the amazing wildlife. He made a new orangutan best friend and encountered two charging rhinos. So this time, as we jump into Chapter 8, Stephen returns from Kumai to a dangerous, upset city, and there's a big potential change in this French-English negotiations. Uh, Stephen continues to work the intelligence angles and continues to do dissections with Van Buren. Spleens are, thank goodness, redeemed. And Jack (laughs) enjoys simple sailing and spying on the French frigate. Fox and the old buggers finally show their real colors. Oh, Mike, it's quite the chapter this week. It's quite the chapter. We've got a lot to get through. So here we are. We, we left Stephen, as you said, Mike, being chased by rhinoceroses in the rainforest at the top of the mountain um, last week, that just narrowly escaping, somehow being crushed by these two amazing creatures. Uh, we get a fairly quick account of him descending back down again, these thousand steps. It's raining with this warm, really, really heavy rain. He's finding this even more wearisome going down than he found it going up. The text says there was an even greater happiness than before, that of a fulfillment that had gone beyond any anticipation and of something not far from the beatific vision. So despite the fatigue, despite the fatigue, he's feeling literally on cloud nine. The happiness is still glowing inside him when he gets to the Durian Grove at the bottom of the hill. He realizes he's an hour and a half late and doesn't see his escorts and his horse. He's hoping to bump into at least a couple of Dayaks and a horse to carry him home. He sees horses' rumps sticking under the Hindu tower, and he sees, first of all, Master's mate Seymour and two Malays, the Dayaks after all, under a palm frond shelter. And they see Maturin in this straw cloak that he's been given by the monks, completely taking aback Seymour, who thinks Stephen must have looked like an orangutan. And Stephen goes on and says, how's, how's Mr. Aubrey? How's the captain? Seymour says, he was in fine form when last I saw him. He ran up to the main jack the other day, says the midshipman. Think of that, sir, at his age. <laughs> he started a podcast, Mike. Think of that at his age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He's now gone with the master to survey the coast. and We're going to pick up the story of Jack in a second. Stephen looks across. He greets these rather glum, cross-looking Malays. Seymour thinks, I've got to get Stephen fed here. So he offers him some chicken that Lieutenant Elliot had shot, thinking that they were jungle fowl. And by the way, Mike, I've got no idea what a jungle fowl really is or how it's meant to be different from a chicken. But anyhow, clearly these were these were large birds. And it turned out that they weren't really there to be shot because the story is told that the woman who owned them had dumped a bucket of water on Lieutenant Elliot's head and made him pay. <sighs> anyway, Seymour says that the hullabaloo 
that they had with this guns, chickens, buckets escapade had been, as it were, nothing compared to the hullabaloo in the town the next day. People running around screaming, firing muskets, just like a revolution. Whoa. Whoa. Well, the chicken, O'Brien tells us, had spent far too long in a bag in a humid rainforest, and it tasted so much like physic that Stephen immediately put it aside and, and, you know, headed for his horse. And Seymour offers and gives him a leg up. And Stephen realizes that Seymour really sees him as an aged man, you know, yeah. uh, not not just thinking about Jack at his age, but thinking about Stephen at his age. And then Stephen starts to remember all these other recent solicitudes and you know, somebody telling Clark to, to take care of the agent. And he realizes he meant me now. And, and he's kind of thinking, I wonder if it's this old weather beaten, sun bleached wig that makes me look decrepit or at least. And he says past mark of the mouth and i was kind of like wait past mark of the mouth well sure enough it's a horse reference should have known that here but it's an english horse reference about telling a horse's age by their teeth we'll actually hear it again later in the commodore so oh right so that that must go along with that never looking a gift horse in the mouth meaning if you look at a gift horse Right, right. So what, what you're saying is age. Oh, right. right. Does that ring true with contemporary North American equestrianism, Mike? It's true. It is true. And that is the, the you know, kind of the one way to start getting a decent feel for a horse's age because of right. the way they progressively wear and age over time. Yeah. Well, Stephen wants to know more about this revolution that Seymour mentioned, you know, in the town, but but he really can't hear much in this pouring rain here. And when he finally gets it out of him, you know, everything that Seymour heard is clearly second, third, maybe 15th hand. <laughs> you know, according to Seymour, there's been an armed uprising. The vizier has been dragged off in chains or so the story goes. The sultan's on his way back. And he adds, you know, apropos of nothing, that the French, like the lovers they are, have turned their ship on its side to clean, caulk and repair it and done it at the worst possible time. Gosh, I mean, it, it's, it's funny. Things are happening down at sea level very rapidly, but we, we can't yet really piece them together. Muskets, upheaval in the town, French careening. Oh, what's going on here? Meanwhile, it's not a happy trip going onwards down the hill, down towards the town for Stephen. It's still raining. He's having a miserable time. The midshipmen are having a miserable time. They're up to their knees in mud. They're covered in forest leeches. Forest leeches already sound bad. Horse leeches, and Mike, I'm guessing horse leeches are even bigger and leechier yeah. than regular, the regular kind. Stephen's trying to get information from the Malays, these two rather surly-faced characters. They're not forthcoming. Arriving in town, Stephen sees that the streets are empty. Even his Javanese brothel, sorry, bawdy house, is boarded up. And uh, the only thing he notices is the orange glow of lights above the palace and a confused hubbub behind the walls and i'm like you know that mike i'm thinking that's, that's either a korean barbecue party and some happy times or you know <laughs> so, something else is not going well behind the walls of the palace right stephen takes seymour who's younger but with less stamina than the old i mean i like this observation of stevens that it tends to be the, the older guys who've got the stamina and i'm right, right. prepared to go along with that <laughs> stephen takes seymour back to the ship to have him deloused and put to bed grateful in turn that when he finally gets to Van Buren's place for a catch-up, Van Buren, the nocturnal nightbird Van Buren, is still awake. Van Buren sees Stephen. This is this is his chance to find out what's going on. 
by the way, Mike, just like so many other things that we've had lovingly recalled in this book, we've got a loving recall to the fact that O'Brien loves telling us this action at second hand in almost right. sort of th- throwaway indirect speech from the characters and from secondary characters as well. You know, Van Buren is not the hero of the story. He's the one who's telling us what's going on. So before we get into all of the action, though, Van Buren is taking care of Stephen. He removes all these leeches, all these parasites. Um, he wipes down Stephen with a towel, puts some clean clothes on him, and declares that he thinks he's going to need coffee and an omelette to feel more human. And this hypothesis is confirmed. After six cups, Stephen tags that and says that this, this was your best prognosis. The six-cup coffee <laughs> prediction was, was a solid one. Stephen tells Van Buren that he had a great time with Kumai. He says, it was nearer paradise than anything I am likely to see again in this life or the next. That's 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 pretty high for a guy who's been in the rainforest and the desert and the Galapagos, you know. Uh, certainly, Mike, we were getting that from the tone of the of the last chapter. Just o- O'Brien regarded that as the real spiritual home for Stephen. Absolutely. Yeah. Meanwhile, Van Buren's he's okay with this but he's got his eye on his own collections as well um, he asks if he brought a tarsier for them to dissect a tarsier is a, a a cute little thing right it's described as a small brown tree dwelling insect eating nocturnal primate with according to wikipedia baby yoda's huge eyes small ears long tufted tail and long hind limbs I may have inserted the baby yoga in there. Baby yoga. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, well, Wikipedia. It well, was a great get, description, but I had to put a little context to it. <laughs> let's get back on uh, Wikipedia and insert baby Yoda's ears then. I think that's great looking at this picture here. There you go. Brilliant. Uh, well, it turns out t- Tarsiers around the world can breathe easy. Stephen had promised not to kill anything, and he's explaining this to Van Buren. It would need a heart of brass, he said, to kill a Tarsier. And Van Buren says, well, that's as maybe, but when it comes to primates, I'm the brass-hearted guy, especially for a Tarsier, he says, the strangest of them all. Well, with, with the dissection turning into what looks like a bit of a dead end, they've, they've got to find something else to talk about. And finally, I think, Mike, we're going to get on to finding out what's been happening in the palace. Yeah, Stephen asks Van Buren, what's afoot? And and Van Buren kind of says, do you, do you really want to know? It seems, you know, of course I want to know. And Van Buren says, well, the queen, Hafsa, the, the sultan's wife, uh, took your, oh, I mean, some outsider's advice. And on their third attempt, they seized Abdul in bed with Ledward and Ray. Now, the vizier let Ledward and Ray go because, you know, they pleaded that the sultan had given them this, this guarantee of safe conduct. But he did seize Abdul. And the vizier's men and the Dayak guards, the ones that were left that weren't with the sultan, had to put down a, a big commotion by Abdul's friends. And they're now searching for uh, you know those amongst that group that had run away. And that's, uh, Van Buren explains why all the houses, including Stephen's house, are closed right now. Um, Van Buren's actually unsure, though, what's going to happen next. You know, Stephen's going to say, you know, where's this all going to go? He says, there's a chance that Abdul's pretty face and gazelle-like eyes may save him. Uh, now, Van Buren explains that Leshua, the guy we talked about, Stephen's triple agent, the Pondicherry Clark, yep. has been murdered. And Van Buren says, you know, I think Fox's life is in danger, yep. you know, from assassins, which he describes as ten a penny there, or from poison, you know, all of this very widely available. And he thinks, you know, Stephen might be threatened as well. So he suggests that Stephen and Fox, as soon as Fox returns, 
get aboard the ship as soon as possible. Uh, and to that end, he gives Stephen a, you know, a set of pistols, sends his watchman and a servant along to protect Stephen and get him safely back in. Wow. Uh, twist and turns. All of a sudden, it's, you know, it's danger time again for Stephen. He's right. Yeah, he's ashore. He's he's in danger here. Stephen heads back to the ship. And despite the danger, uh, despite all the things that must have been buzzing in his head at this point, falls into his cot in what O'Brien says is something not far removed from a coma. This, this is very Jack Aubrey-esque sleep that, that Stephen's <laughs> fallen into here. He's takes him some some struggle indeed to overcome the sleep and get awake in the morning. Uh, finally, he gets uh, more aware of his sense of urgency. Coffee gets on board as well. He's finally shaved, dressed, put in his black coat, taken into town with, thank heavens, not just a pair of pocket pistols, but a couple of Marines to guard him. And we encounter Fox. And my, my, this is a great moment. This is a key moment, I think, in what we're going to see of the, the arc of Fox. We've, he's been doing great so far in the last couple of chapters. And it seems like this is his big moment. This is his big potential payoff. Let's see what's going to happen here. Fox had arrived at the venue an hour earlier in a state of contained excitement. He greets Stephen with a friendly, familiar greeting, but there's a bit of detachment there. Stephen tells him that one of his informants, Les Chouer, had been murdered and that Ray and Ledwood are at large. He passes on the warning from what he calls a source warning about the, the danger of murder and poison. And Fox says that he had gotten a note from Ray just after he arrived back offering to bear witness against Ledwood in exchange for transportation anywhere. So treachery on the French side. No big surprise for those of us who've known Ray for a long time now. Stephen says Ray must expect that Fox bears Ledwood great ill will. And th 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 this clearly is a bit of a trigger for Fox. Stephen's not alone. I think we've noticed it as well as observers that Ray and Ledwood, there's some really deep, really sinister history there. Fox confirms this. He says he hopes that Ledwood suffers the same death as Abdul, but is concerned that the Sultan's notion of honour and his safe conduct pledge may save Ledwood. Either way, says Fox, I think we may say the treaty is in the bag to use a low expression. Stephen says, we're not quite there yet. He says, it's the toss of a coin whether Abdul does not turn the scale with his pretty face and his gazelle-like eyes, meaning Abdul is in a relationship somewhat with, uh, is infatuated with Ledward and maybe that'll be the saving of Ledward's skin. Fox is very disconcerted. He tells Stephen he has to go meet the vizier. The Sultan's going to return late this uh, that afternoon. There's going to be a meeting of the full council and they're going to decide tonight. Fox's big moment postponed once again. Remembering that Stephen's balcony looks out over the palace courtyards, stick a pin in the view that we have from Stephen's balcony. Remembering that they have this view, Fox says, I'm going to come back and call on you this evening and hear about Kumai. And clearly the unspoken thing is, I'm going to borrow your vantage point here to take a look at what's happening in the palace. True to his word, later that day, Fox appears at Maturin's door. And it's a slightly bizarre, slightly grotesque scene. He's in a Marine officer's uniform. I don't have a clear mental image, Mike, of the picture of what Fox looks like, but I've got a clear mental image of somebody who's clearly an upper-class administrator-type patrician looking ridiculous. 
right. in a Marine's uniform. <laughs> a Marine's uniform and blue spectacles. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Too funny. As, as a disguise. And this is like this is like the worst pastiche of Stephen Maturin. Yeah, this is the worst pastiche <laughs> of spying ever. Right. <sighs> Stephen has a light meal ready for them. He praises the sea slugs, which are the part of the light meal, I hasten to add. They're not samples. These are um, right, right. the light meal. Praises the sea slugs, says they're delicious. You know, Try the green ones. And apologizes for the warm wine, but offsets that by saying Jupiter is rising. And Mike, we had a little echo of the memory of the discussion of Ganymede. Remember when Jack confused Ganymede, meaning Abdul the cupbearer, confused with Ganymede, one of the moons of Jupiter. So this is a little touch point for Stephen to get back to that imagery there. Stephen's sleeping partner, the girl that is tending to whatever needs he has, um, opens the door and walks in, collects her drawers. She's forgotten her drawers. Which of us hasn't had that problem before? <laughs> Stephen relates his two experiences of Malays running amok, to use this phrase, running amok in the streets, running, yelling, cleaving people down until he'd seen them stopped by a dyke with a spear. And he describes the crowd running in, sticking their chrises, their ceremonial Malay daggers into this dead guy, Another maniac comes in from a side street, wounds somebody and runs off. And he's describing this as a strangely cruel episode. In fact, he describes it as a strangely cruel and bloody country. In five minutes, everybody went back to their business. And then thinking about bloody and cruel, he adjusts his judgment. He says, maybe indifferent is a better word. And Mike, first of all, I read that and thought, yeah, he said life is cheap. But we're going to come back to this idea of indifference, uh, I think, in a little while in the chapter here. Yeah, yeah. I thought this is this is a fascinating observation from Fox on 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 this scene that Stephen had experienced here. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I thought, yeah, O'Brien stuck that there for a reason. I yeah. agree. <laughs> well, as they as they they're eating there, they hear these you know big procession of drums and trumpets. So clearly, the Sultan is arriving. And, and Stephen decides he's going to take advantage of the remaining light to show Fox some of his Kumai drawings that, you know, Fox had asked about. And I think probably also to distract Fox, who's probably very, very interested in what's going to happen. But it's going to be a while before they see anything. So Fox's whole attitude changes. He's delighted to see the drawings. And Stephen starts with this sketch of this large volcanic rock Buddha statue, which dominates the temple. And Fox notes that the Buddha's posture, this idea of, of there with his right hand raised and facing forward, signifies fear not, all is well. And Fox is thinking, this is a great omen. You know, there's no other statue like that in this particular posture ever recorded in these parts. And, and then they go on, they look through the other sketches, and Fox says, this is a wonderful discovery. It's earlier than anything else he's seen in Malay uh, country. And so, they, you know, they they go on, they've kind of moved over here. And Fox says, you know, look, uh, don't call for a lamp now. I've really memorized all your drawings. Why don't you just, since the light's failing, tell me everything you saw while, while you're there. And I'll, I'll remember the details from the drawings. And Stephen wow. says, well, you know, that, that'll take us till sometimes next year. Why don't I just share some general impressions? And Fox says, sure. And he says, well, are, are you interested in this new Malay version of a hummingbird, you know, uh, that, that I found? And Fox says, well, moderately. So <laughs> well, how about orangutans? And Fox says, you know, I wouldn't walk across the street to see another orangutan. I've seen so many of them. <laughs> and Stephen says, okay, well, maybe I'll start with the Hindu temple and talk about holy things and their surroundings. Clearly a nice way of saying that Fox and Stephen are very different people here. <laughs> yeah. So 
interestingly, and again, as you mentioned this point earlier, they're talking and Jupiter appears in the sky. So I think we're meant to, you know, again, get that, that, you know, emotional resonance echo to, you know, where it's Abdul's fate that's, you know, kind of being decided on the other side of this wall, but they go on talking. And I love this, you know, we talked about this in another chapter with the vital forces and, you know, there's so many things that, that O'Brien is kind of laying next to each other in the story for us. So Jupiter's in the sky and Stephen is describing opening the temple door for the first time and the sunlight falling on this statue of the Buddha. And he's describing his experience very beautifully. And Fox agrees. He says, I've had a greater sense of holiness, sanctity, detachment, unworldliness in the severer Buddhist temples of the ancient rite than in any but the most austere Christian monasteries. So, you know, this to me was was kind of an interesting remark on on so many levels. Here's this fox who's you know a man so taken with himself and all this dainty high living and everything else. Now talking about these ancient, more severe monasteries, and you know what, you know, as a theologian, I would call a sense of the numinous that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that he's received here. This is so fascinating for me. But then, true to himself, Fox takes that. He's been in the middle of Stephen's story, and now he's making some long parenthetical remark when all of a sudden, uh, O'Brien writes, there was a clash of discordant drums and cymbals from the palace and a volley of musket fire, the sound of trumpets and a great long roaring horn. Uh, these regular drum beats start. The innermost courtyard is lit with great lanterns. There's this huge orange glare of a fire so big that some of its flames are actually showing above the outer walls. The horn sounds again. The fire turns blood red, presumably from some powder being thrown on it. And Fox says someone is about to catch it. And he hopes it's Ledward. Wow. Wow. It's a real handbrake turn of a moment. We've been deep in philosophy and character and natural history and all of the mystical bits of this place that they're all in. And suddenly we're back to the roaring, screaming, you know, life is cheap. It's, it's, a, it's a barbaric society in a, in a turn of a sentence. Yeah, and I, and I hope the Ledward gets it stuck to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and we're back, more, we're back to being, but yeah, I, I spent a paragraph and a half being kind of all ascetic and, yes. and philosophical and otherworldly, but now I'm back to being, you know, an, an animal. <laughs> yes. <sighs> There's shouting. There's laughter. There are muffled screams from the courtyard. The flames are flying higher. There's sounds of a hysterical mob. So it's a bad night for at least one person within the palace. Over time, the sounds diminish, the fire dies down, the lanterns are removed, and things go quiet again. It, Mike, it's a very strange experience for us as a reader, because having seen all of the, the precursors of this commotion inside the palace, we were hoping to get put right in there. Right. But all we get is, oh, and then it all died down again. And it ends up not being frustrating. You just keep thinking, well, I'm going to fight. This is going to be revealed you know, secondhand, the you know, in the in the back end of some obscure sentence that's coming up soon, so I better watch out. <sighs> Fox is desperate, just like us, to know what happened. He can't go and see the council until he knows for sure. Because this is another example, I think, of you know, somebody who doesn't want to expose himself to a, a reverse or an affront. So he thinks, I need to find out, but I can't ask until somebody already knows. So I'm just gonna sit here and stress about it. He must act, but only on accurate information. 
Stephen does the best that he can with what he knows. He says, my source is going to know within the hour, but he's certainly not offering to introduce the source to Fox. He's certainly not offering to head off right there. He's going, you'll get the information when it's available to to smart people, and those smart people are, are, are not at your disposal right now. Fox is really, really keen for Stephen to go. Stephen politely says, no, sir. Nice. <laughs> and I, I love that, again, we're expecting to go see Van Buren. Like, that's what we're about to get. But no, the night passes, and next the next morning, and Stephen does encounter Van Buren, but not hightailing it and banging on his door in the early hours of the dawn. They bump into each other in the buffalo market. Well, of course you would. Um, they talk about buffaloes, first of all, because <laughs> that's, that's the elephant in the room, right, is buffaloes and their wild their, their wild animal relations here. S- Stephen, by the way, thinks that one of these wild buffaloes might have breathed on him, what was breathing in his face when he was sleeping at Kumai. He tells Van Buren that his colleague, meaning Fox, is importunate, persistent to the point of annoyance or intrusion to know what had happened to Abdul's pretty face and his gazelle-like eyes. Now we get to it, Mike. Van Buren says, by the time the Sultana, the Sultan's wife, was finished, Abdul had neither. He was mm. peppered. This is a really grim, you know, cruel, cruel punishment meted out, tying a sack over the head. Ledward and Ray so far are untouched, although some people in the court have thought that they might be seized. Van Buren says he has a feeling that the Sultan is just sick of the whole thing. He had given Abdul's body to his family rather than throw him in the street and forbids the family to come to court. We still don't quite know where Fox stands. No. Another great Patrick O'Brien, complete transition here. And, and, you know, I know you just talked about the Buffalo market, but I think you've got to talk about, you know, where's Jack now while all this is going on? Where is Jack? Because, I mean, this is, this is, this is a love I got from you. Uh, And it's great. And again, it's one of those juxtapositions I hadn't noticed the first time I read the book. I was all about enjoying the poetry of Stephen finding his his uber happy place in Kumai in the temple at the top of the mountain. And guess what? I hadn't noticed, but just a few paragraphs later, Jack is in his happy place. Maybe not on quite such a cosmic plane as Stephen, but Jack is, is, is back to his childhood, really. He's back to his youth. He's doing his, one of his favorite things, sailing a small boat. And like anybody, I guess, who's read this passage, who's ever sailed a small boat, I was really, really loving this. The really physical, the really tactile description and the, the description of the joy of just being out on the water and the elements are carrying you along and you're using your skills a little bit. And it's taxing, but not so taxing that you can't enjoy the moment. Sailing a good small boat, the sheet in one hand and the tiller quivering under his knee, coaxing every ounce of thrust from what light air there was. It's great. Great description of a good day on the water. Of course, like most sailors, he'd rather be going faster. He'd rather there was more breeze. But do you know what? He's had fewer and fewer occasions to do this since he left the midshipman's berth. He's fine without the gale. He's fine without tearing along. He's just enjoying the challenge of eking every little last drop of, uh, of motion out of the boat. Now, this is important because it's a moment of quiet. It's a moment of respite. He's gone off to do some hydrography, some surveying, and his everyday life, as O'Brien reminds us here, is normally very busy. So this survey is a really great interlude for him, but he's also enjoying the sailing. They're sailing back past the little inlet 
where the French frigate had been exiled. And he'd already had that on his to-do list that he was going to go find out what was going on with this French ship and whether they really had resources and whether they were really making a repair. Everyone aboard the cutter is mentally betting whether or not Jack is going to try and steer the cutter through the narrow pass between a cape and a small island that lies just beyond it on this tack. And by the way, Mike, for the for the sailors, you might remember Jack tried to lead a French ship between an island rock and a peninsula, and it ended disastrously for a French ship just back in uh, Treason's Harbour. So we know that this is a manoeuvre with some risk already from Jack's previous exploits. Probably not such great risk since we're just talking about a cutter here. Um, there's a little bit of a, a betting game going on. Who's got the line here? Bondon is pretty certain that, that Jack is going to make it. Warren, the master who can't swim. I like this phrase here. He thinks that he might, but he wishes that he wouldn't try. Right. <laughs> and and Yusuf, the, the, the stoic Muslim brought along for language skills and knowledge of the plants and the fish and the fruit that they can eat, says, well, what's written is written. You know, inshallah, he'd already mentioned that he can't swim. So whatever is written, this is destiny. We're not going to find out what Lieutenant Elliot thought because he's not there. Even though Jack had wanted to bring him along, had wanted to make amends for all the harsh words that he'd had to address to Elliot at certain times. Um, Elliot had been injured by a falling paint bucket. A, a really low-key, bucolic, downbeat kind of an injury. You know, he wasn't injured with a, you know, a recoiling cannon. He didn't strike his head on a beam drinking the king's toast. Somebody dropped a bucket on his shoulder. So El- Elliot is kind of tarred by that, I think, here. He's unlucky, basically, as well as inept. Jack, on the other hand. Anyway, Jack's mind, as always, takes all of the shifting variables into consideration. He's plotting momentum and drift and leeway in the set of the tide. In less than a second, he sees the answer. He shoots the boat head to wind just at the moment that they pass through this gap right into the wind's eye, and he rounds the cape. And I love the the nice little bit of hubris for Jack as he completes this maneuver of this small boat that he's loving the maneuvering of. It says, the saving of five insignificant minutes was no very great triumph. Indeed, the caper had a faint, very faint air of showing away, but it was pleasant to feel the old skills unimpaired. Ah, he's going, yeah, the old guy still got it. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, this is just just a great passage. Well, Jack, you know, he's done this. They're coming along the coastline. And Jack finally cements his plan together. He's going to sail into one inlet and then walk along the shore to the next inlet, uh, take the road, go kind of up and across. And he knows that, you know, if, if he's got this right, he should be able to see the French frigate from there up high up on that hill over the water. Jack had had been tempted when he sailed up the coast to, to you know actually go into the inlet but he was thinking yeah that might be an indiscretion mm. it might reflect badly on fox it might impact the negotiations he didn't want to do that but he really does want to see how she's doing especially if they're in the midst of this perilous business of careening the ship on this coast which has such considerable tides and and he tells himself this is strictly professional curiosity. This this you know this is not you know any any advantage here. And he says, by the way, even all these French officers are out there with telescopes peering at the Diane from Prabang. So you know there's there's nothing wrong with this here. <laughs> no, I mean he's he's had this distinction in the past, hasn't he? He's he's willing to see a difference between the kind of spying and surveillance that Stephen does, which he worries is slightly kind of underhand. Right. And the, the, the ruse de guerre of, you know, false colors and stuff for a, for an honest sailor man like him is totally fine. 
That's right. Read, re- <laughs> reading somebody else's mail is not okay. Replicating somebody else's signal flags is okay. And there's a fine line in Jack Aubrey's mind, and he's pretty sure he can stay just on the right side of it. That's right. So with Jack's conscience reasonably clear, I think, they catch a nice fish for supper, thanks to the advice of Ahmed, and they head to shore. And this is actually going to be a little a little Stephen Maturin moment for Jack here. He's going to step ashore and he's going to wave them off and say, I'll see you in a short while. He sets his rendezvous and he's off with his shoes in his hand, stepping ashore onto the beach. Bondon is glad to be back at the tiller, but concerned that Jack is ashore practically naked as far as Bondon's concerned. He's got no weapons. There are no well-armed hands. There are no Marines with him. And Jack walks on a good way, starts climbing up the bottom of the bay into the shade, through some rice paddies, through a village, and comes out into this crowded harbour. There are Chinese junks in the harbour or offshore. Climbs up the rocky headland to get into the opposite port on the other side of the headland. And he follows this path that goes down to some big fallen rocks by the edge of the sea. There are fishermen there. And as he goes down one of these paths, he stops. And there's a small platform there. And I love this. It's almost an insignificant little detail, but it's a very serene moment for Jack. There's a platform there's a spring coming out of the cliff face. There are some ferns, and Jack doesn't notice the ferns, but O'Brien, the author, notices them, and we notice right. them. And he thinks, I wish Stephen was here to see it. He sees a large black and white bird with a heavy fish in its talons, more natural stuff that he wishes Stephen was here to see. But here's what he was really after. Looking through the telescope, he gets a great view of the French frigate. She's careening, as you said, Mike. She's heaved over onto her larboard side. Her copper is visible. They heaved her up against some really big trees, ones that have crimson flowers on that remind him distantly of Ashgrove Cottage. And Mike, the scene here is not really what Jack was expecting. No, no, it, it's interesting. He's he's looking at this ship, and you know he did expect it to be turned over like that. But what he also expected was to see people like working day and night to get this thing back into the water. But they're not. You know, there are a couple people walking around on the ship, but he really can't see. He sees you know all their tents are out. Their cannons are kind of well positioned. It looks like a, a you know a good setup here. But you know the only other crew members he can see you know some are playing a game under some coconut palms, and their crewmates are watching them as as Jack's sitting there watching this. You know a few local fishermen pass him on the path, and and then a third man comes by who's just as as brown as a local but clearly European, and he smiles and says, Captain. Aubrey, sir, I believe. Uh, dun, dun, dun. And, and wow, yeah. So it turns out that he is Lieutenant Dumeny, and he had met Jack when Jack was a prisoner of his uncle, Christy Pellier, back in 1801. We remember that from yeah. the Sophie days. Yeah, you know, post-captain, yeah. Right. And, oh, and no, no, Jack, even post-captain, yeah. This was back in, um, yeah, right, in uh, Master and Commander, yeah. Right, right. And, and, and Jack... Um, you know, at first he's he's kind of a little reserved and set back, but then he looks at this guy and he goes, Piero, oh my gosh, you know, and then it, it takes his mind a few minutes to sort of say, well, wait a minute, that fat little midshipman that I met back, you know, 20, you know, uh, what was this, like 10, 15, 10, 12 years ago, is is now this long-legged lieutenant. They catch up with each other, uh, and it's clear that both Christy Pellier and Jack have been following each other's career pretty closely here. Um, Pellier is now a frustrated admiral, glad to be an admiral, not happy to be sitting at a desk in Paris. Perrault tells him that, you know, with absolutely no uh, admonition in his voice whatsoever, how dismayed and admiring he and his uncle were when they heard about Jack cutting out the Diane. Um, 
you know, he says that, you know, he's seen Jack on the island a few times and, and he's actually gone out to look at the Diane. And he had really hoped that Captain Aubrey might pay, repay them sort of the compliment of, of coming to look at their ship as well. And, and Jack says, well, you know, their ship has a, you know, a most capital view from here. And Perrault uh, says, well, tell me, you know, have you ever careened a ship without a wharf or a halt? And Jack says, well, nothing bigger than a sloop. And he starts to talk about some of the frightful things that can happen to some of the rigging and everything if you turn the ship over the way they have. And Perrault confirms that, yeah, in fact, some really frightful things have happened. And that, in fact, this ship can't possibly float before the next spring tide, most likely at least the one after that. So we're probably looking, what, Ian, at a couple months before the ship is going to be moving again? Two spring tides a month. So it's going to be at least four weeks by the time they get to the spring tide after the next one. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and, and, and he says that he's telling Jack this so that they don't kind of accidentally knock each other on the head in some useless battle. You know, he, he's basically explaining that right now Jack could easier cut out a lighthouse than the Diane could cut out this French frigate here. And then Perot starts to kind of explain their situation. He says the local people were growing hostile. Uh, most of the Spanish craftsmen have deserted in Philippine vessels. This is what Stephen thought might happen before. The crew itself is living in extreme poverty and on ancient rations from down kind of in the bottom of the ship because the mission has so badly mishandled the money. And we're kind of reminded of Stephen remarking on Ledward's gambling and how they, you know, they, they, they've run out of resources. And the French actually, even their bills of credit you know, are no longer accepted here. So they can't even buy rice. Um, but thankfully, he says, there's some beautiful fish that run with the tide. And that's the reason he's here on this path, you know, passing Jack. Jack then encourages him. He says, get on down, catch while the tide is making. He says, I'm going to send you over a present via one of the Malays. But asks him to sign the chit, sign the piece of paper, so he'll know it wasn't stolen along the way. So this is him sort of apologizing for the fact that he's going to have to ask for some formality, for some exchange of messages. I think he really wants to avoid the suggestion that he's got any kind of formal connection to the uh, the French establishment of this frigate here. Perrault says, it's very kind. I can't, though, take anything from an officer who's technically an enemy. And he confesses that he... He didn't mean, he hadn't intended to talk about poverty in such a way as to compel Jack to make a gift. And Jack cuts him off. He says, quelle connerie. And Mike, uh, Google Translate says, what bullshit. And <laughs> that's not quite a literal translation, but that's the kind of tone. Connerie means, what a what a bunch of nonsense. Quelle connerie, as your uncle would say. And Jack says, the, the uncle in question, Christy Pallier, had given Jack 50 guineas and some of the best dinners he'd ever eaten whilst Jack was nominally a prisoner back in 1801. The Americans, he said, have loaded him with dollars when he was, the, he, was, uh, he was their prisoner over in Boston. So don't be an ass. Let me know if there's some neutral, discreet place where we can meet. And failing that, Jack says, Piero should get in touch the minute peace is signed. God bless you now, says Jack. Yeah. Oh, nice. A, f- a friendly valediction, an encouragement to go catch fish and to meet for dinner. And Mike, I, I can't think of a better place for us all to just toss our line over the side, catch a John Dory and uh, join us when we finish this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash 
Lover's Hole. Welcome back from break. I hope your your fishing expedition was a success and, and you're as refreshed as we are. So we join Jack as he's greeting Stephen and, and says he's happy to see him back from those godforsaken steps. And then he starts joking about Stephen having abandoned his body house. He asks, you know, have all the girls gotten pox or has Stephen turned evangelical? And, and he starts laughing as we know only Jack can. Jack's humor continues. You know, he just can't stop. And Stephen's trying to get him to control himself. And Jack says, you know, I'm thinking about you as a methody going to a brothel, <laughs> handing out tracks. And finally, Stephen says, control yourself, sir, for shame. And Jack says, well, he will if he must. And he calls for Killick. And, and we get that classic Killick line, which I'm a coming, ain't I? <laughs> yeah. So Killick, as it turns out, is bringing drinks to quench Jack's thirst. Jack's been rowing for the last three hours to get back to the ship. And Jack tells Stephen Perro's news about the French frigate. And, and this news, it turns out, also eases Jack's mind. You know, he says, you know, we've already missed the first rendezvous with a surprise. And, and I can't wait around here as much as I'd like to get that French frigate after we're done. If we wait until she's floating again, you know, I'm going to miss the second rendezvous. Yeah. But he says, you know, he's, he's kind of worried. He might miss it anyways, because, you know, unless Fox, as he says, spreads a little more canvas, the negotiations won't be over by then. And Stephen says, you know, you may be a little laid by the lee on that. Don't worry about it. He says, you know, why don't I take you out in my boat and let you know what's been happening while you were away? And Stephen does just that. Um, he fills him in on everything. And he tells him, you know, with Ledward out of the picture, Duplessis can't speak to the council because he has now no official interpreter. Huh. So, Stephen surmises, the French mission has probably failed, but it's one or two days before Fox can you know, really officially wait on the Sultan, uh, and that Fox's hatred for Ledward has not lessened. So they still have this kind of impediment, and that, in fact, Ledward appears to be deranged, even though an assassination will do nothing to help him now. He's made two attempts. So Stephen sums it up saying, unless Duplessis can get a fresh negotiator and some fresh inducement, something else to offer you know, the Sultan, yeah. or perhaps a postponement, which is a possibility, he doesn't think the negotiation is going to last much longer. So the Diane probably is in good shape to leave in time to meet the surprise. Now, Stephen is very glad to hear about the French frigate's predicament. I think that goes back to his thinking about them, you know, talking about throwing the frigate into the deal. Hard yeah. to hard to throw a beach <laughs> ship into the deal. So as they're paddling back, you know, Jack, I love this, you know, this reconnecting. Jack asked Stephen, hey, wait, you know, I saw this eagle-sized bird carrying this large fish of Thorship's. You think it could have been an osprey? And Stephen says, well, you know, it might be. Some birds seem to be almost universal now, like that true barn owl I saw at Kumai. And uh, so, you know, I think there's, here's Jack coming to Stephen on Stephen's terms. And then Jack, you know, hopes Stephen will return to him. He says, you know, I, I hope you're going to sleep aboard tonight so we can play some music. It's been an age. And Stephen says, well... He's engaged tonight, but tomorrow with the blessing, which, of course, leads us to wonder, I wonder what Stephen's up to tonight in the yeah. middle of the <laughs> Let's see. This is, this is one of these moments, this sequence that comes now that 
sticks in the mind sticks in the mind as part of steven's character sticks in the mind as part of the weird dark mystical attributes of this 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 particular story arc is taking us out into the far east he greets van buren telling him guess what i've brought a cadaver and oh and by the way there's a larger second one outside if you'd like it and my, I love the kind of offhand. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If it was a lesser writer, if it was a melodramatic writer, Stephen would have been pushing the cadavers on a squeaky beer through the moonlit streets and there would have been shrieking owls and, you know, rustling footsteps and Stephen in a cloak with a hood. There was none of that. He said, oh yeah, I've got a body. There's another one outside. Van Buren says, well, thank you. What else would you say when somebody brings you two cadavers in the middle of the night? He says, thank you, and clears down the long table. We still don't know what's going on with these cadavers, by the way. Wuhan's porters lay the first cadaver down carefully. They leave their room with their eyes down and their hands clasped. Van Buren looks under the sheet, and he's surprised to see a European. Stephen's sharpening a scalpel. It seems to me like he's affecting great indifference. Oh, yeah, it's... uh, it's an English renegade. He knows. Uh, I know. His, his name is Mr. Ray. <gasps> okay, people. Mr. Ray. We're, we're, get, we're getting this all backwards. We're not going to find out exactly how and at what point and via what final means Ray's denouement finally came. We learn about this because he's dead meat under a cloth on the table. Ladies and gentlemen, since when was it? Ioni admission. This guy's had it in for Jack and had it in for Stephen. And here he is, about to be stripped to the bones mr van buren's overjoyed he's not overjoyed at the identity of the cadaver he says i'm really overjoyed to have an english spleen there's some redemption for you your spleen gets praised up as being english Um, especially he says in the freshest cadaver i've ever had like this is very obviously a very freshly done in corpse here he knows the bullet wound the rifle bullet wound with this kind of very insouciant oh yes look there's a rifle bullet wound Um, Stephen says the, the other one, the heavier one outside, of, of course, Ledwood, um, has a similar recent rifle bullet wound. Perhaps they were fighting. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Van Buren looks into Stephen's face and asks if Stephen arranged this with the vizier. Like, I spy your hand in his maturant. And Stephen says yes. The court had notified Duplessis that their protection had been publicly withdrawn. That's the protection of Ledwood and Ray. And uh, therefore told Stephen that he could do as he pleased, discreetly. No recognisable remains. Van Buren's very, very happy. He says, bring the other one in and we'll, you know, we'll start. You can start at the head. But Mike, we never really get to find out. It's left so ambiguous, dangling here. Was it actually at Maturin's hand? Did Maturin commission the dispatching of these two men? Did Maturin merely step aside and let somebody else do what he wanted to get done all along? It's it's delicious the way that this really dark but kind of big turnaround moment is just still shrouded in the ambiguity here. Well, as as our old friend Midge would say, I think it's not for nothing that we've had this continuing storyline about Stephen and Fox shooting all the time and Stephen being such a good hand with the pistol, yeah. coming along with his rifle skills to where he could challenge Fox. And now we find Ledward and Ray dead of a rifle wound, probably from Absolutely. some sources. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> oh, great catch. It's it's such good stuff. I might, there's a bit of a connection to, to the contemporary world, to Patrick O'Brien's world here, I, I think. It was, as we look back on the careers of Ray and Ledward and the role that they've played in the story and think about who Patrick O'Brien was, and I'll give a nod here to Dean King because he raises this point really well in his book, The uh, the Undiscovered Life, his biography of O'Brien. 
He's pretty sure that when O'Brien was writing about Ray and Ledwood, he might well have had in mind two notorious British spies of the 1950s, Guy Burgess and Donald MacLean. And for those of us who are Cold War spy story nerds, we all remember Burgess and MacLean alongside Kim Philby and later on alongside Anthony Blunt as part of this Cambridge spy ring that was spying on behalf of the KGB in the UK and in the British security services in MI5 and MI6. Burgess and McLean were lovers, just like Ray and Ledwood. Um, and it's easy to speculate that their deeds would certainly have been well-known to and presumably heartily despised by somebody who had a history with the British intelligence agencies like Patrick O'Brien claimed to have. And uh, there's a really nice paragraph in Dean King's book. He says, if there was ever any doubt about what O'Brien, the former intelligence agent, felt about traitors such as Burgess and McLean, he made it clear here. To dispose of the bodies of the two spies, described by one reviewer as Burgess and McLean in wigs and knee breeches, Maturin and his associate Van Buren could quite happily dissect them. So there you go. Uh, if you're not across the story of Burgess and McLean, it's super fascinating. The, the history is all coming to light now. Lots and lots of fascinating books getting written about the kind of 50s and 60s era of the Cold War. Burgess and McLean, two very notorious spies, founding members along with Philby of this kind of Cambridge spy ring. Wow. Absolute villain figures, figures of, figures of hatred in sort of in the in the British establishment and the press once their uh, once their treachery was discovered. Van Buren and Maturin get right to it, and they're working very quickly. And and O'Brien tells us that you know, despite the hundreds of of Maturin's own dissections and the many others that he's seen and participated in, Stephen had never seen anybody work as fast as Van Buren. As O'Brien writes, such skill. Such delicacy in removing the finer processes, such <laughs> dexterity, boldness and economy of effort in removing superfluous material, such speed. And with this example, he, meaning Stephen, worked faster and more neatly than he had ever done before. And, you know, they, they, they work so quickly that when they're done, they realize, oh, my gosh, it's still night. Uh, and and uh, O'Brien writes that Van Buren had two fine, fresh, gleaming jars, as as they put it there, on his spleen shelf, along with many, many other organs that, like wares in a butcher's shop, are, are sitting around in brine for future use, and that the rest of the remains of these two bodies are now in zinc-lined wooden chests. And you know, we were talking earlier about Fox's comment about Malay being, you know, not murderous and cruel, but perhaps just indifferent. Well. You know, I, I think this is that scene recounted again. Is it murderous and cruel or is it just indifferent? Clearly, Stephen and, and, and Van Buren with these two corpses, just indifferent. So maybe it's not love that's the opposite of hate. Maybe it's indifference. Yeah, or, really or good point. The indifference of both, you know, the opposite of both love and hate, indifference. Yeah. And like this is a dramatic act as well. These were very visible public figures, part of a delegation, an originally well-received delegation. They had diplomatic protection. And here's another kind of indifference for you. The vizier says, do what you like. Just make sure there are no visible remains. Right, right. And guess what? There are no visible remains because soft tissue is all in brine, in, uh, in jars on the shelf, and everything else is in a zinc-lined coffin. So, wow. <laughs> Darkness. Well, and, you know, and the interesting thing is, you know, it seems like, you know, this is the end of a scene. But, you know, in true O'Brien form, they're not done yet here. There's more to come from this scene. 
Yeah, they, they, they clean up, of course, as you would have to. Um, they talk outside under the moon in the night breeze. Van Buren says it's the most gratifying dissection he's ever performed. He says he still won't see patients the next day. He's willing to admit that this, this has been enough for one night's work. Um, his patients can go and buy dried salamanders. And another kind of indifference. Patients, nah, let them chew on some folk remedies. Um, he's so happy. He was bitter that he hadn't gotten the Pondicherry Clark, that he didn't get to dissect Les Chueur, um, who was a Hindu whose body had been turned over to his family to be cremated. So he thought he'd lost the only chance he'd ever had of a partly European spleen. And uh, great. Happy days for Van Buren. He's got some fresh, fresh European spleens. They go straight back into talking about natural uh, natural life again. Uh, Van Buren says, well, what about these rhinoceroses? Tell me more about the rhinoceroses that you found. You know, oh yeah, na- as natural as anything to dissect two recently dead men and then talk about rhinoceroses. Um, he's curious about whether Stephen had suspected that the rhinoceroses were there, just as he got surprised by those rhinoceroses back in the, uh, the rainforest. Stephen had said that actually they were there. The signs were there, deep, well-worn past the droppings and the tracks, but they had not been apparent to Stephen until after he'd seen them because he'd been so wowed, so astonished by the possibility of walking up to a wild boar and accosting it, you know, scratching the back of an orangutan. All of this great, these great encounters with nature had completely blinded him to the fact that he was sharing real estate with these big, super, super dangerous rhinoceroses. He'd never spoken to the monks about the rhinoceroses because that takes him in the direction of killing things. The rhinoceros horn is an aphrodisiac or alleged to be. He doesn't want to raise the monk's suspicion that he might be after craftily doing away with the rhinoceros and taking its horn back to sell. Uh, <laughs> me? No, no I'd, I'd never kill anything. What? Rhinoceroses? If you see any rhinoceroses, tell me. <laughs> I like the idea. Right, right. <sighs> and he'd never thought of rhinoceroses really in terms of them living in the mountains. And uh, Van Buren says, well, yeah, you, you're right about the horn. Um, the Sultan attributes his wife pregnancy to the use of the rhino horn as a aphrodisiac. And Van Buren says, Stephen must have been deeply concerned when their three-ton bulk came headed towards him. And Stephen says, yes, you're right. The, the ground was trembling. I trembled with it. He compares his vaulting, springing idea that he might jump over them. He compares that to a Cretan bull vaulter but he says this, this was all in his head. The best he could do was just to sort of be frozen there. And uh, he couldn't figure out which hand or which foot do they move when they're pulling these Cretan bull jumping moves. And before he knew it, they'd run right past him. He says no living thing there had showed any malice with the possible exception of some tree shrews, which quarreled amongst themselves. Like we, we get this nice juxtaposition of great power and death and almost evil in the case of the rhino and the power of the rhino horn and sex to influence relationships and then the kind of mundane squabbling of the tree shrews and it sounds a little bit like we've got this analogy to ray and ledwood's behavior what on earth were they thinking they couldn't see it until it was there they couldn't see the danger until it was there we've got animals separated from humans tree shrews though are uh Maybe an example of you know us, us gabbling about our dirty business. All the, all the quarrelling going on in Pulo Prabang is just like the tree shrews squabbling. Yeah, it's fascinating. These rhinos who you know could be, as you say, so deadly, they show no malice whatsoever. But the tree shrews, oh, the tree <laughs> yeah. shrews, yeah, there we are. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Van Buren and Stephen continue. And among other things, they talk about 
includes the anatomy of cheerfulness. And Van Buren says it's said to have its seat in the spleen. So, ah, here we go. We're back to spleen redemption here. They're actually the, you know, that's where cheerfulness is. And and Van Buren says, and O'Brien writes, only disordered spleens could have given the gland its indifferent reputation. Spleens were perhaps more frequently disordered in England than elsewhere because of the climate, because of the diet. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, O'Brien, we see that little poke at England here. I'm sure there's yeah. an Irish accolade coming very soon. We'll, we'll keep our eyes peeled for it. Uh, and then, you know, we get this, you know, kind of, okay, we're, we're off on this, you know, all the dramatic stuff is over. But O'Brien writes, after a yawning pause, Van Buren said, well, we shall have to boil Cuvier's bones after all in an artificially casual tone that would not have deceived a child. <laughs> Stephen knew that it was his duty to be amazed. And in spite of an almost insuperable weariness, he cried, oh, how, what, what are you saying? And Van Buren says, I thought that would amaze you. We shall have to boil them because there'll be no time for the ants to finish the cleaning Your treaty is being written out fair at this moment in gold letters upon crimson paper, four full sheets. And Mr. Fox, warned shortly after sunrise, will attend for the signature in the early afternoon. It's like, oh, my gosh. You know, after all this dissection, all this chat about 100 different things, rhinos and monkeys and spleens and everything. Oh, by the way, just to let you know, you've won the negotiations over. You're getting your treaty, and Fox doesn't know yet, but he will. And I just yeah. wanted to surprise you with it. <laughs> That's great, unbelievable. So, as you say, Mike, that feels like it should be the end of the chapter. It's got the feeling of ready for signature in the early afternoon. This little look ahead sounds like they're wrapping up the end of the chapter with a bow, but no, but no, there's more. Next morning, we're back on board. Stephen wakes in a foul mood. Bondon's shaking his cot. Captain's orders, if you please, sir. A phrase which Stephen had been managing to mingle with his dream since the beginning of Conscious Time. He's too angry to sleep. He gets up with a bit of help from Bondon. And Ahmed gets him dressed. Killick brings him some breakfast. There is a letter by the coffee pot. To be read immediately, brought by Mr. Edwards, that's Fox's secretary, who's down in the hold with the captain. There's a cry for the bargeman to make ready. Stephen reads the note. Here's what it says. Fox is writing, we have won. He goes on to say, we've won the treaty on the exact terms that we asked for. It's going to be signed at once as soon as uh, we're at the court with a small escort. Fox says he wants Stephen to be among them and to join them for dinner afterwards. He signs, in haste, your most obedient, humble servant. And this this is Mike little spoiler here this is like a little farewell to the decent side of fox's character when he signs off your obedient humble servant and straight away steven spots where this is headed he says yeah not sure he's very humble now edwards and jack who've been down in the hold come in filthy and we find out why they've been filthy they've been getting the sultan's subsidy all these little casks of of currency gold and silver they've been getting that ready to hand over to the sultan as part of the deal Breakfast. In, in Jack's case, second breakfast comes around, sits down eating with Stephen. At five bells, they're going to get up and get dressed and ready to go. Jack assigns Killick and Ahmed to get Stephen ready. But we already know Stephen's got his, his Scarlet Physician's robe ready and on hand for him to, to give it the ceremonial touch. 
Well, Stephen, we read, looks really good. He's been severely shaved. He's in a new curled and powdered wig. And in spite of Killick's firm measures, and, and O'Brien describes them by saying, and the more savage kind of nursery governess was nothing to preserve Killick. And he continues to write about Stephen, his spirits rose with those of the ship. So, you know, instead of this manhandling by Killick, you know, Stephen's noticing that everybody around him is laughing like they've just captured a prize. And in fact, all these heavy chests full of treasure are going, you know, coming out of the hole, going down the side. And at the appointed time, Jack appears. He's in full uniform. He has his gold-hilted presentation sword by his side. And they all go down without ceremony. And this lack of ceremony continues. They meet Fox's people without ceremony at the landing. So here are the old boogers. There's no ceremony. And Fox comes riding down on a, on a you know, a, a Javanese pony that the Sultan has sent. And he asks Jack if he has any objections to sailing immediately if this all goes as well as Fox thinks it's going to go. Um, and, and Fox says to him, and I'll, I'll quote O'Brien here, the news should reach the ministry at the earliest possible moment. And in India, of course. And of course, you know, we we're thinking, yeah, I'm sure that's, you know, why you want to leave immediately because, you know, they, they need to hear this news. Well, uh, Fox says he's already asked the vizier to transport the delegation's things in the double proa. And, and Jack's mind is kind of operating in, in two halves here. Half of it is listening to, you know, Fox babbling on in this barely contained excitement, sort of like he's drunk. And the other half in his mind is reviewing all the ship's scores and when could they be prepared to leave? And he says, well, you know what? We may be a little bit short of galley fuel, but we could leave on this evening's tide. And Fox says, you know what? I'll eat my sea pie raw to gain a day. And O'Brien tells us that he ends that with a high-pitched laugh. So Fox oh. seems to be coming apart a little bit here or something. Yeah, oh all gosh. the gentility, all the possible subtlety and decency of Fox is rapidly dissolving in this flood of hubris that he's got with this victory. They get to see the sultan, who greets them with proper compliance. The ceremony is muted. His face is ravished during the long reading of the treaty. After the signing is over, the atmosphere is a bit less grave. Things are starting to unwind a little bit. The vizier is delighted at the extremely valuable alliance, no doubt. Also, the filled treasury, the presence from the hold of the Diane there. He's also pleased at getting rid of the sultan's troublesome favorite whilst ensuring the goodwill of the sultana, the sultan's wife. Therefore, he's feeling well disposed and he's handing out some really nice gifts on behalf of the Sultan. Fox gets a coral-handled kris, one of these wavy daggers, of great antiquity and a jade Buddha twice as old. Jack gets a star ruby in a lacquer box, which has presumably been pirated from some poor merchant heading past the uh, the Java head here. And <laughs> Stephen's countenance slips. And Mike, so does our countenance slip. Right. When we see what they've got for Stephen. Ha! Huh. A chest of the Honourable East India Company's best Bengal opium. Oh, man, this was all going so well. Stephen was succeeding. Get thee behind me, Satan. Anyway, and you wonder, does the vizier know about Stephen's habits? Has he got some kind of clue that Stephen likes likes his laudanum? Um, has there been some opinion formed of Stephen's habits of proclivities from the fact that he's been living ashore in a brothel? As far as I know, he hasn't imbibed while he's been on the trip. We haven't had him talking about cravings. We haven't had him talking about sleep or after effects of opium or anything. So maybe this is just just 
bad luck staring Stephen in the face here. Meanwhile, the vizier's hoping that everybody's happy with their gifts, very happy to help with baggage and servants because he knows that everybody needs to get on the ship now and get on their way. They leave the palace. They head off to dinner. Dinner is just fish, but the old buggers are absolutely beside themselves. You know, even though it's just fish, they look like they're eating their favorite meat dishes back home. And they're beside themselves in this flow of spirits and elation. The talk keeps getting louder and they're talking over one another. And Fox, as they arrive there, asks for no ceremony. So they've split up. Fox and his company are kind of sitting at one end of the table Jack and Stephen, Richardson, Elliot, the sailors, Welby, the Marine lieutenant, you know, are kind of all at the other end of the table. And the buggers are loosening their clothing and they start talking very openly about everything that's happened over the last three days about, you know, the information getting to the Sultan's wife, the attempts to catch Ledward and Abdul together. And then they added, as O'Brien writes, a crossfire of wit about sodomy. And, and Jack and Stephen, you know, are, are not happy with this. And they kind of glance strong, you know, glances down at Fox. But Fox, as O'Brien writes, merely looked down at his colleagues on either side with an amused condescension. And then it, it, finally, Johnson cries and all the French are buggered, too. And finally, Fox says, you know, that will do, Judge, in, in, in an authoritative tone that had been unheard before. So this thing is just completely getting out of hand. It is. I mean, we've had loads of celebration dinners um, in these novels, and this is an example of one that's just very quickly sliding into, you know, bad taste, hubris. Uh, it's just nasty. It's just outright nasty. Stephen is really, really discomforted by the whole thing. There's no discretion either, which is even worse for him. Right. The text says it was deeply painful to hear all the fundamental rules of intelligence, all the rules of even common good sense disregarded. And the details of this particular intelligence coup, as it might be called, were more painful still. In any case, he was determined to take proper leave of the Van Burens and his Chinese friends, whether the ship sailed that day or not. There was no urgency whatsoever about the treaty. The situation had already been dealt with entirely. So... Stephen's got a very detached view of the whole thing. You know, let's let's set about our business in a matter-of-fact way. It's appalling to get behind all of this, you know, this indiscretion and this poisoning of intelligence sources. And it must be galling as well watching Fox sitting there grinning away at these this kind of, you know, the butt jokes of sodomy humor. He wants to get out of there and he waits for one more big gale of laughter to cover his exit. So we've had Fox... We've, we've got the old buggers as well, still chatting away there. Stephen listens to them. They're, they're really gross flattery directed towards Fox and wonders how a smart man like Fox, a man of Fox's parts, can swallow it. And the envoy who's getting all of these really crude plaudits from the old bugger simply smiles and shakes his head gently from time to time. And one of them says, another flourish of wit, peppering for adultery in England would lead to a run on the commodity. A fortune might be made by cornering the market. And there's a big roar from that line. And that's when finally Stephen takes his leave. He's very glad now that Jack has seen how the poor brutes were betrayed and by whom. He thinks about mediocrity in a member of the council, a member of the legislature, and thinks, they order these things better in France. But then with honesty, <laughs> and Stephen Maturin's conscience there, says actually they would order these things better in an independent island. However, 
And Mike, you, you said a few paragraphs ago, we're dissing the English. We've got a, a little accolade for the Irish coming. And there it is. They, they would order these things better in a truly well-constituted independent island. Yeah, good stuff. Right, right. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, Stephen's left, but Jack feels like he really has to say, but he doesn't like the company. And he especially doesn't like the sound of Fox's voice when he calls down the table. Tell me, Aubrey, just when does the tide turn this afternoon? I wish there to be no time lost getting this document home, no time lost or dawdled away. And and Jack is thinking, you know, he doesn't like the fact that the matter has been brought up. He doesn't like the manner in which it's been brought up. They're both offensive. And Elliot and Richardson are both looking at each other very nervous because they, they they know that Jack does not suffer fools gladly. <laughs> They're waiting to say, what what is going to happen here? Uh, the feast is winding down. The talk turns to the penniless French. And Crab says that now that they don't have to pay their subsidy, maybe they can afford their way home. And Fox tells him to keep his mouth shut. He says, going home in disgrace is far worse than starving here. So mm. that, that was kind of an interesting thing, part of where we just got to see where Fox is coming from. I'm sure he's contemplated this often, <laughs> you know, even yeah. in the last few days here. Crab uh, apologizes for remark, but then just sinks his face into his beer. And finally, a fruit tray and decanters come in. They drink to the king. And then Fox, after they've drunk to the king, the perfect moment when we stand up and we leave and we head our way, Fox takes the treaty out of, you know, his servant's hands and he holds it up and he says, I drink to what I have signed in his majesty's name. So now Fox is really, oh my gosh, you know, let's top the toast of the king. Let's toast to what I've done for the king. You know, I'm, you know, puts himself better there. Well, that's it. His cronies are just like, huzzah, hear him, hear him. And Loder stands up and leering at Fox says, well, I drink to the bath, the most honorable order of the bath. Oh, bottoms up, more huzzahs. Fox smiles modestly. They huzzah knighthood three times three to baronetcy, to governorship, to 5,000 a year on the civil list. And this is now completely out of hand. Jack, I'm sure Jack is, you know, he heard the king, he was ready to run, and now I can't imagine that he's not out the door. No, no, no. Jack's also got an eye open for the members of the ship's company who are inebriated at this do. Uh, Elliot is drunk, uh, catches Richardson's eye, excuses himself and Elliot, uh, says Richardson's going to take them to the barge in 45 minutes. So Jack's getting this all up for the for the seagoing members of the company to get away with at least some shred of dignity. He alerts Seymour to have bond and spread sailcloth over the stern sheet cushions given the company coming aboard, the drunk company coming aboard, <laughs> which is like, you know, putting a, putting a tarp down. That's a classy right, move. Right. <laughs> Don't let anybody vomit on the sofa. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, he walks off with Elliot to hail the ship. Uh, and on the ship, Jack reports when everyone's coming aboard, asks to be alerted when the envoy and his people put off and has the salute ready, the departing salute, changes to riding at single anchor, creeping to a kedge, kedging, a, a, a lightweight anchor that you can have on a lightweight cable, you know, just temporary ready to go. He's hoping, hoping that while all this is being arranged, Stephen hasn't got off looking for centipedes. And musing about you know men and their characters and undressing and getting ready to go to sea again at last, Jack is musing on the fact that most men are benign, expensive, affable, and generous in victory. Fox, on the other hand, having shown some signs of affability, is clearly arrogant, hostile, and mean, a meanness that must have always been there. 
And that's a really great reflection. O'Brien's done this before, set up characters. He did this with Jack Aubrey a couple of books ago, right. set up characters with two sides and said, let's let those two sides compete and see which one emerges. And we always suspected that it was the mean side of Fox that would prevail. And in the last moment here, that's absolutely what has happened. This meanness must always have been there. There's not going to be a, a feast for anybody outside of his retinue. There's not going to be a feast for the young gentlemen, the warrant officers, the foremast hands who've always had to behave themselves ashore in the interests of this treaty. There's no telling them the good news. There's no acknowledgement of their part in the voyage. He drops off for a few minutes, does Jack, re regretting his, uh, his ale and his port until Mr. Reed tells him that Lieutenant Fielding has announced that the barge is putting off. So we're going to be on our way soon. Quick wash. Killick tends to him and up he goes. The breeze, we discover, is perfect. It's been a, a chapter of nice breezes and we've got a nice breeze here ready to carry them out. Everything is exactly as it should be on the ship. So we get this little moment to enjoy the beautiful weather and the happy scene and the Royal Navy ship all tidy and squared away. And we get this great, grim description of the party coming aboard. They start the salute. The envoy comes aboard. I'm quoting the text. Followed by his suite, looking squalid, frosty, crapulous, old and unclean. Their coats buttoned to the wrong buttonholes, their hair astray, and at least one flap or codpiece blowing in the wind. They were received with rigid, exact formality. And abruptly sobered, they fingered their clothes. Fox looked extremely displeased. The suite glanced uneasily at one another, and they all hurried below. And Fielding reports that Stephen had come aboard with the Marines, so there was no need to worry about Stephen and centipedes. And uh, it's it's over to Jack then. Not Fox, not Stephen, not the Sultan, not Ray and Ledward. It's over to Jack to wrap up the chapter here. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm loving that, you know, Stephen came aboard with the Marines, carrying a hairy thing into the gun room. I can't wait to oh, come yeah. back to that here. But so, you know, the, uh, they're standing there, as you say, it's up to Jack here. The Prabang Fortress starts their farewell salute, and the Diane answers it gun for gun as they drift through the channel into the open sea. Mr. Warren says, Jack, the course will be northeast by east, a half east, and that, I trust, will bring us to our rendezvous with the surprise. End of chapter eight. Oh, great stuff. Oh, and by the way, we've just had all this tumult and this character and this revulsion and the overturning of the French. And straight away, well, what's next? Rendezvous with the surprise. Like there was, there was no way this was ever the last chapter of a book. It sounds like it could be, but there was no way. We've got Tom Pullings and we've got the surprise. But what, what, what a lot going on in this chapter, Mike. Right, right. I mean, oh my gosh, lots of action, lots of things happening, you know, some serious deepening character insights. What yeah. an incredible intelligent coup for, for Stephen. I mean, unbelievable the way he's pulled this off in this, you know, series of allies uh, he set up there. Um, and a great success for Jack and his crew. Sadly, I think both for Matron, for Jack, for the crew, all of this kind of sadly spoiled at the end by Fox and these old buggers and, and the way this whole thing has ended, what it could have been phenomenal for everybody here. Yeah. Uh, 
and and these these characters that have sort of had their moment and then turned and had this great reversal and this great downfall. I, I I'm not a scholar, but this feels very Greek to me. This sounds like the kind of thing that wow. O'Brien must have been writing, inspired by, you know, Greek tragedy. We've got the noble, potentially, apparently noble figure of Fox, who just turned himself out from from being quite patient and maybe even decent and pragmatic into this nasty, self-regarding, pompous asshole. Right. Ray and Ledwood, who had been on the verge, I mean, clearly not honourable characters, but they'd been on the verge of a bit of a coup, had been, you know, 50-50 as to whether they and Duplessis were going to strike a deal on behalf of the French. They end up as two pieces of meat on a slab. So what's the phrase? Sick, sick transit, Gloria Mundi. <laughs> That's right. Well done. Well done. Well done. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm going to be so relieved to meet up with the surprise. I'm going to be so relieved to get rid of the envoy and his entourage. You know, for me, the sooner the better. I'm ready to get on to South America. But this is Patrick O'Brien. We've yeah. got two chapters left. Could it possibly in any conceivable O'Brien world be that easy? I don't know, Mike. We'll just have to keep going. What do you say to just one or two more chapters of Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart. on the fact that men are benign, expansible, expansible? <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a great one. I'm not expansible for that. <laughs> <laughs>